0: All right, well now we're going to start talking about Joshua chapter 10, chapters 10 through 12. And uh, this week we are coming to what I would consider the most epic battle that you're going to find in the book of Joshua. If you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings books or movies... uh, Jericho and Ai, those battles we read about the last couple of weeks, that's like Helm's Deep, right? That's the big battle that happens in the middle of the story, but now we're getting to that big final war that comes at the end of those movies, the end of the the return of the king. This is the battle where finally Joshua and the Israelites take over. They conquer all the major cities of Canaan. They, They break the backs of their enemies, and now once and for all, the tide has shifted And they're they're on their way uh, to a complete victory. Uh, But in the midst of that, in the midst of this story, it's kind of easy for us to miss the point of what's going on in the text. Because there's a lot of stuff happening here, right? As, As Jen was reading it to us, we heard there's a bunch of different cities that get mentioned. There's a bunch of different kings with weird names that we hear. There's all these military tactics that it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on if you're not holding an ancient map and being able to follow these people from from place to place and of course there are these big miracles that happen these big crazy moments and uh, at the end of uh, it's easy for us to to kind of not know what's going on but right at the top before we go anywhere I want to help you all focus (laughs) I want to help us to see the point because it's it's right there, it's in verse 14, it says the Lord fought for Israel. That's the point. While 31 different kings are doing their best to defeat God's people, God, this great warrior king, fights for his people. And he fights for us as well. God fights for his people. And that's what I want us to think about today. Today I want us to consider just that simple fact that God is the great warrior king who fights for his people. And I want us to see how knowing that can change our lives. So today i got three simple points. I think they're going to be easy to follow. The first is just simply that God is our warrior king. The second is he calls us to surrender and faith. And the third point is we are guaranteed victory. God is our warrior king. We're called to surrender and faith, and we are guaranteed victory. Okay, so let's, let's, well, actually, before we start talking about the warrior king stuff, I think right at the beginning it's worth mentioning that big miracle. You probably heard it, right? Verse 12, it says that during the midst of this battle at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon." And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar that the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? So we read here that Joshua, he prays for the sun to stop in the midst of heaven, and it does. Now this is one of those places where if you have come to the church service this morning as a skeptic, you're probably thinking, how on earth can people believe stuff like this? This, this seems kind of crazy. How could anybody in their right mind think an event like that took place? Now, I know we've seen some miracles in Joshua already, right? We saw uh, them cross through the Jordan River. We saw the river part. We saw the walls of Jericho fall down. We saw them attack enemy nations and not lose a single person in the battle. But this miracle, this one stands out, doesn't it? This one is, is a tough one for us to get our modern minds around. Especially if we assume in reading this that what it means is that the Earth stopped spinning on its axis so that the sun could stand still in the sky. I I looked on NASA's website and it explains what this would be like. It says, if the Earth stopped spinning suddenly, well, the atmosphere would still be in motion with the Earth's original 1,100 mile per hour rotation speed at the equator, and all of the land masses would be scoured clean of anything that's not attached to bedrock. So that means the rocks, the topsoil, the trees, the buildings, your your pets, whatever, they would fly off into the atmosphere. Now that doesn't happen in our text. So what do we do? What's going on here? I actually read a, a lot of different things about this this week. Probably you're not surprised, right? Lots of people have different opinions, even some very creative ways of translating the Hebrew to maybe try to explain this away so that it doesn't quite say what we think it says. And and I'm gonna be honest, I got out of my depth when I started reading these arguments. Uh, I I was a little confused, I wasn't sure what the right choice was, and so I ended up calling one of my old seminary Hebrew professors to try to give me some guidance. And uh, I don't wanna name drop here, But let me just tell you, this guy's a big deal. (laughs) He's he's fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and Latin and all these other ancient languages, Ugaritic, you know, who knows, all these kind of things. He uh, is, of course, a professor at the school, but he also, he translated the NIV Bible. So this guy, he's a a big deal. In fact, he's such a big deal that I was shocked when he just answered his office phone when I called it. (laughs) And then gave me 15 minutes to chat about my sermon this Sunday, when I know he's got 3,000 other students who are all preparing a sermon for the next Sunday. Um, But it was great talking to him, because he's a really good teacher. And um, he reminded me of something that I think is worth everybody knowing when we come to a passage like this. One, he, he said, you know, Joshua, the book of Joshua isn't trying to tell us how this happened. The book doesn't say the earth stopped spinning on its axis. All it says is that from their vantage point, in the midst of this war, the light kept shining and it looked like the sun stopped. The light stayed up so that they could win the battle. And he said that could have happened in a variety of ways. Who knows? Could have been some kind of refracting light. It it could have been some other thing. It's really not the point, is what he was saying. The method that God used is not the point, the point is that God intervened, and who knows how he accomplished that, he's God, he can do whatever he wants, <laughs> and that's, that's the central point for us, that we have to come back to whenever we encounter stories like this in scripture, because there's actually a lot of them, a lot of these big kind of unbelievable miracles, If you come to this and you object to the miraculous stuff in Scripture, on the surface, you might be saying to yourself, well, I I object because that kind of stuff just can't happen. But if you dig a bit deeper, what is your objection really? Really, what you're saying is there cannot be a God who does that kind of thing. Now, any scientist will tell you that... uh, No science in the world has disproved the existence of God. In fact, there are a lot of scientists sitting here in this room who would be happy to tell you that, that in fact, it's just the opposite. That the, the order of the universe, the way it's designed, it points towards a strong likeliness that there is a creator who set things in order. And if that's true... If there is a God like that who could create this world and set it up to operate in the way that it does, well, why wouldn't he be able to disrupt the order as well? So this thing, it's a huge miracle. I don't want to try to dismiss it. I think it says what we think it says. But don't get too distracted trying to figure out how it happened. Don't get too distracted trying to figure out the the exact science behind it, because that's not really the point. The point is, if there is a God like that, what does it mean for you? If there is a God who can do something like this, what does that mean for you today? The miracle's big, but it's not the point. We see it in verse 14. It says, There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Israel. Okay, uh, real quick, no day like it before or since, that's a, a, what we call an idiom. So it doesn't really mean, uh, in the Hebrew, this is the greatest day in the history of the world, but it's an idiom. So if I say, you know, Steve-O, that guy is the greatest. You know, I'm not actually saying Steve-O is, like, the greatest man who's ever lived. I'm just saying he's, he's a great guy. I really like him. In the Hebrew, it's telling us this day is extraordinary. There's never been a day like it. It's amazing what happened. But what's so amazing about it? What's the extraordinary thing? To us, it seems like the extraordinary thing is that the sun stopped, right? But here's what it says it says, The Lord heeded the voice of a man and fought for Israel. That's the point of the story. It's not this miracle, it's that God won this victory. It's not the means that he used to accomplish it. It's that in this moment, God is showing his heart to the world. He's showing. He's showing the Israelites in battle at that moment, but he's also showing it to us. By passing this story down to us for hundreds and thousands of years, he's showing us his heart for us. That he is a warrior king who protects his people who provides for his people, who fights for his people, who carries his people. This week in my personal devotional time, I was really struck uh, because I was reading through Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses. Anybody familiar with that passage? It's the song that Moses sings right after they've crossed the Red Sea, after they've been freed Uh, From slavery in Egypt. And the song, it's this joyous song. He says, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. I stopped when I read that this week. The Lord is a man of war. Now look, I am not a man of war. I am in fact a soft urban man. <laughs> I, have, I have a Fitbit on my arm to remind me to walk. <laughs> so when I read that God is a man of war, I don't know how to relate to that. You know, there are, there are men and women in this congregation who are much more rugged than I am. And so knowing that he's a man of war, that's not the best illustration for me. I hear that and I think, well, if that's who God is, how am I supposed to relate? But but I realized this week as I was thinking on that, you know, Moses is not trying to tell us that, that God is like John Wayne. The point is not... He's tough, so you should be tough. The point is that we're frail. The point is that we are like dust. Even a warrior like Joshua, this great and mighty man, he has no hope on his own. We're weak. And deep down inside, even the strongest of us, we are hardwired to long for protection our hearts are crying out for somebody to rescue us from the pain and the suffering of this life. Somebody to provide for us. Somebody who we can run to for safety and security. And here in Joshua, God says, He is the one. He is the one To whom all those longings are pointing. He's the one that our hearts are searching for. This is what the story means. that, That the warrior God, the one who made hailstones fall, the one who made the sun stop in the sky, he is fighting still for his people today. And to you, right now, he's calling you to come and respond To enter into his his safety and his protection. And maybe you say, well, that sounds great. I'd love to feel safe. I'd love to feel protected. Especially in the midst of all this stuff I'm going through. But how do I do that? What's it going to take for us to experience that today? Well, here's my second point. The second thing that we see in this passage is... Since God is this great warrior king, he calls us to both surrender and to faith. He calls us to first to surrender. The thing that really stands out, if you keep reading through all these chapters, we just took pieces of them because it's so long today, but if you read through the whole chapter, the thing that stands out is just how many kings there are. So many kings. I read this week that the area that Joshua conquered was it was about the size of Vermont. And yet, there are 31 kings that get conquered. I mean, I don't know what it took to, to be a king back then, but it, it must not have been too hard, right? 31 kings in Vermont? In our passage, we find out that the first five of those kings, they get together, they they form this coalition, and they start to fight. But when things go bad, they go and hide, and they hide in this cave. They retreat, and then we, we read that Joshua brought the kings out. And Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone out with him, he said, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and they put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. That is a dramatic moment. That's like something straight out of Braveheart, right? Standing on the king's necks. It's this. It's an astounding picture of defeat. And as they go on, this story, you can read, as they conquer the north of Canaan, as they conquer the south of Canaan, it just happens over and over and over again. They just wipe out these tiny little kings all throughout Canaan. It almost seems laughable when you get to the end of the book, when you get to that last verse that we read today, where it says, all in all, 31 kings. I was uh, reminded of what it was like to play uh, high school football in North Carolina in the late 90s. Uh, You probably can't relate to this experience, but let me tell you about it. Um, If you've played sports before ever in high school, especially if you're around a men's high school sports team, you know that there's these tough guys, right, and they're all trying to assert their dominance. They're all trying to be the big man on campus, you know, and they, they walk around wearing their jerseys all week long and looking tough. But in reality, they're like 16-year-olds, right? They're boys. But, but even in our school, you know, we had these guys that were, were tough guys. Uh, and they can continue to live in that reality that they were the greatest football player in the whole school, in the, maybe in the whole country, until Southern Nash High School came to town. You see, because Southern Nash High School when our team full of 165 pound 5'11 guys got to play, we got to face six foot five, 225 pound, future NFL Hall of Famer, Julius Peppers. (laughs) And on that day, when Southern Nash came to town, there was no question who the king was. (laughs) That picture, those high school boys, with their chest puffed out, these 31 kings running around Canaan, acting like they they own the place. You know that's a picture of us, right? That's us. We're all scraping. We're all clawing, trying to carve out this kingdom for ourselves. We live our lives like we're the ones that call the shots. If we're being honest, we live our lives in submission to no one we believe that deep down, at the end of the day, we're the ones who are in charge. But the people who know the true king in this passage, to those people, (laughs) we look foolish. We look small. See, there's only one true king. and, And he's a good king. But, he calls us to surrender. He calls us to give up our little crowns. <laughs> he calls us to repent of our treasonous lives. And submit our lives to his leadership. To stop pretending like we're so big. But instead to, to admit. That we're small. And we're weak. And we find in this text that, that we can do that. We can surrender to God and he will fight for us or we can stand opposed to him well we read what happens Psalm 2 it says the kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burn burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us but he who sits in heaven laughs the lord holds them in derision and then he will speak to them in his wrath the real king is calling us to surrender but here's the good news once we do we don't have to fear anymore once we do he calls us to courage once we do, he calls us to faith. And that's the other thing we can learn here from Joshua. If you want to know that safety I was talking about, if you want to know the protection of this great warrior king in your life, well, then you need faith. You need to believe. You need to trust in him. You need to learn that deep down, he will fight for you. That you if you are a part of his people, that you belong to him, that you are his, and that he will not let you go. Now, the circumstance of this battle is important if we're going to know that lesson. If you remember, uh, when the, the battles that they, they had earlier with Jericho, with the nation of Ai, those battles took place when Joshua, in his strong leadership, led the people into this God-ordained battle but this battle came about because of Joshua's weakness it came about because of Joshua's failings do you remember last week we read the story of the Gibeonites they were this enemy nation and they came to to Joshua and they pretended like they were from close by they dressed up and they asked for a peace treaty they asked if the Israelites would commit to protect the Gibeonites. And we saw in that moment that Joshua sinned. That he did not seek the Lord's counsel and instead he made an agreement to protect the enemy forever. It was a tremendous mistake. It was sin. And in this passage, in the beginning of chapter 10, we find out that when the other Canaanites heard about it, When all these other kings found out that Israel had made a treaty with the Gibeonites, well, they said, let's go attack Gibeon. And let's draw them out into war. Now, the Israelites, they're obligated to protect these foreign people who are supposed to be their enemies. What a mess. Trying to put myself in Joshua's shoes. Man, I would have felt so guilty. I would have felt so insecure, so ashamed, knowing that my mistake had brought my people into war. But what I love about chapter 10 here is that's not Joshua's attitude at all, is it? Joshua, in fact, is faithful throughout. He goes boldly into this battle at Gibeon. And not only that, but in the the middle of the battle, he asks God to make the sun stop. And he does. (laughs) Wow. Man, that guy is confident before the Lord in a way that, that really inspires me. He knew that the whole reason they're in this battle is because of his failure. The whole reason they're fighting is because of his sin. And yet, he doesn't doubt for one moment that God's favor rests on him. This is a man who knows it deeply in his heart. He knows that he belongs to God, his Heavenly Father. And that type of heart-level confidence, do you know it's offered to you as well? That's something that is available for all of us, right? That's why we do this whole words of assurance thing after we confess our sins at the beginning of the service. It's what Steve-O read to us a moment ago, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The cross, it is proof for us that we can always go to God with boldness. That he doesn't condemn us any longer. That he loves us. That he loves you. That he desires your good. That he is fighting for you. But so often we get lost in our sin. We get lost in our own sense of guilt and shame. And we get get crippled by it. We get so focused on our own failures. Our own inadequacies. We think... Okay, I know those promises. I know those facts. I've heard that doctrine before, but... God can't possibly love me. God doesn't really want to bless me. No, God, I think God's going to punish me. And so instead of going boldly to his throne... Instead of approaching boldly the throne of grace like scripture tells us we should do, instead of of following him in the battles of our lives, instead of responding to him with joy and and confidence, we run away. And we cower. And and we hide. And, And we live these powerless lives because we think those promises aren't really for me. Those promises, those are for Those are for the better Christians. Those are from the holier people. And look, the only reason I can say that stuff is because I know it. You know, I've I've been there. I have lived so much of my life in that exact same place. where, Where I know the promises... But in my heart, I'm always looking over my shoulder. I'm slow to believe what God has so clearly spoken. And maybe you can relate. If that's you this morning, if you think God's favor couldn't possibly be for you, I want you to know that is a lie from the pit of hell. See, today, our great warrior king, he's calling us to faith. In Christ, God claims you as his own. You are under his protection. And he's not going to change his mind. You're safe with him. You are guaranteed victory. You're guaranteed victory. Maybe you hear all that and still you say, I don't know. How can I be sure? It sounds great, but how can I I be sure that those promises are really for me? It is hard to believe, right? We are so used to feeling vulnerable and afraid. It's hard for us to believe that we could really be protected. That we could actually be safe. We sang that song at the beginning, all things are working for my good. And maybe when you sang that song, you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> I, cannot, I, can't, I can't see how, how what's going on with me right now is, is for my good. But you can believe that. Did you know that? As Christians, we can sing those words and they be true. You might be going through something awful. I'm not going to minimize whatever pain you're in right now. You might be going through the darkest time of your life. But even in your most terrifying moments, even if you contract a terminal illness and you die, God has proven to his people that he will never leave us or forsake us. Now, Joshua, he wasn't perfect. He was not a perfect man. He was, in fact, a sinner, right? We just talked about that. He was the leader who succeeded Moses. He was, Moses was a guy who spoke to God face to face like a friend. And here, Joshua, he forgot to even seek his counsel before making this life-altering covenant with enemy people. Going into this battle, in that moment, Joshua was a failure. He was a disappointment. And yet, when he spoke to God, God listened. When he cried out to God, God answered. And the son stood still. Do you recognize how crazy that is? That instead of shaming him in that moment, instead of God. Forgetting about Joshua, the way Joshua had forgotten about God. God proved his love in a way that Joshua just did not deserve. He didn't deserve that. How could a holy God be so forgiving? How could a warrior king like that just let that kind of disobedience go? How could he ignore Joshua's unfaithfulness? Well, uh, he didn't. That's what we find out in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, near the end, we read the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that moment, we find another Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, in the midst of another great battle standing in front of, in fact, the greatest enemy that anyone has ever faced, facing down the sin of the world. And in that moment, Jesus Christ, a perfect man, who had lived his life in perfect communication and complete surrender to God, in that moment, he cried out to God and he said, let this cup pass from me. God didn't listen. God did not deliver him. Instead, Jesus, he went to the cross and he suffered on that cross for Joshua's sin and for my sin and for your sin. In that moment, While Jesus hung there, bearing the weight of your sin, of our punishment, the sun did not stand still. Instead, we read that darkness came over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what's happening there? That in that moment, Jesus was left exposed so that you could be safe. In that moment, this great warrior king, he proved that not only was he willing to defeat an army to deliver his people, but he was willing to come to earth to stand in our place and to defeat death itself so that he could rescue you. That is what he's done for you. I wish I could make that connect with you this morning. He has done that for you. So when I say that, when I say that you can know for sure that God is fighting for you, it's not an empty promise. It has been proven. And even if you're struggling to see it right now, if you belong to him, If Christ is your savior, then we know that he's carrying you. That you are precious to him. That he is fighting for you. And so for all of us, this moment, that's my call. My invitation is just that you might open your heart to receive it. To come to him in faith. To believe that that your failures are not too much. And if you're living your life far from him... If you're here today and you are in outright rebellion, I want to invite you to repent. To turn away from your unbelief. To take off your little crown. And throw it at his feet. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for your word. We're grateful for your true and good promises to us. We're grateful for passages like this that show us your might. Lord, we're foolish, we're weak, and we're stupid. We turn away from you all the time. We forget what you've done. Lord, would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you heal us today? We pray in Christ's name, amen.